right, shall we get into it? So, uh, Katrina Wallace, uh, CEO of Flamingo. Um, so, why don't you tell us a little bit about Flamingo, first of all? Sure. Hello. Good morning, everyone. Uh, so, Flamingo is in the artificial intelligence field, and we provide something called a cognitive virtual assistant, which is like a robot. And the problem we set out to solve was low online sales conversion rates for large financial services companies. And we solved that problem by applying uh, this robot or virtual assistant called Rosie uh, for enterprises to help guide their customers through the online sales experience. So it's in the emerging category of conversational commerce and in something that's now called intelligent automated conversations. So essentially we automate conversations that traditionally salespeople or call center agents might have in the sales process. We started in Australia, we then went to the US, so North America is our primary market, our head office is in New York, and then last year in November, we decided to come back to Australia because the demand here was so great. So what I did, unlike other startups, is went to America to test it and prove it, and then came back to Australia. And we listed on the ASX in November last year, so floated the company, which has been uh, very successful. Um, we are the second only woman CEO, woman chair business ever to list on the Australian Stock Exchange, which was, yeah, thank you, was nice. <laughs> yeah. um, and now we are looking at the Australian and opening up the Asia-Pacific market. Okay. Uh, I mean, that, it, it, there's plenty of stories I've heard around the, the, the listing process. I mean, do you want to just touch on that briefly? Like, so why did you list rather than just go out and raise... 10, 20 million bucks of venture money. Yeah, right. So we had, um, so the business I launched middle of 2014, so here in Australia, and we had the National Australia Bank as a foundation client. At that stage, we um, looked to some other financial services companies to use our product. And at that stage, the startup market here was not terribly evolved, and these big corporates were very slow in dealing with it. So in one of the banks that we approached, they said, yeah, we'd love to use your product. Go into our procurement process. That'll take about 18 months. At the end of that 18 months, you know, we'll be using your product. And we, oh. <laughs> and we have an expression in startup which is like, we're dead tomorrow. There is no 18 months. There's not even three months. We, if we don't do it today, we'll be, we'll be dead tomorrow. So um, that was the decision to go to the U.S., but I raised funds here. So in the last two and a half years, I've raised, or uh, myself and the team have raised $14.5 million, uh, most of it Australian. And our investment strategy was to do super angels and angels in the initial um, phase. So in the first two years, we raised $4.5 million through high net worth individuals. And was that in $1 or was that spread? No. So I did... $200,000 of my own seed funding just to get the minimal viable product up yep. and running. 250,000 friends and family literally went to everybody I know, hit them up for $5,000, $10,000, whatever I could get, scrape it all together to get the business to the next uh, level. Then we did, I think, $1.5 million. Um, some of those were follow-up, follow-on investors from the original angels. Then we did probably another one and a half they're probably closer to another $2 million, $1.75 million, I think. Um, yeah. Really just working people I knew and super angels. The VC community were not particularly... Loved, loved us, loved the team, but just didn't come to the party, just did not fund us. Um, You're talking local VCs? Yeah, yeah I know all did, the VCs. Did you go to the... uh, any VCs in the room today? I don't think there was any in the list. No, no. I'm, oh, yeah. One. Hello. Um, <laughs> bit sorry now, aren't you? Um, <laughs> so, um, you know, the VCs, look, we can get into that topic now, another topic, another day about why the VCs may not have funded. But did you look uh, at the US VCs? Yeah, yeah. Oh, you so, did? Yeah. So then, so we initially Australian, and then when once we went to the US, we went, all right, we're going to raise $5 million in, in the US. I'll do the typical startup path, right? So there's a certain formula that we, the startup community, 
are taught about when you go to the US, then you go to Silicon Valley and you have to have this and you have to raise like this. And it's a formula. And I got over there and I went, no, I don't know that that formula is, is right for everybody. So anyway, went to the US beginning actually of last year, 2016, and was looking to raise $5 million US. And I launched our capital raising strategy in New York and in um, Silicon Valley. The week that the stock market crashed and all the money was coming out of tech stock and all the VCs backed up and went, oh, okay, we're not funding early stage companies now. You have to have a three to $5 million US annual recurring revenue and then we'll fund you. We love you, Katrina. We love your company. We imagine you'll be terribly successful, but we just won't fund you now. So I realized that we were sort of in what they call um, the valley of death, right? So and you, you've got to be very early stage and people will, will speculate or right into having a significant amount of annual recurring revenue. But if you're in that stage, like amazing product, making clients, we're just about to, to prove our worth, very hard to get funding. Right. So we ended up having, um, getting to um, commitments of the $5 million. So I worked my ass off around the US a couple of months, beginning of last year. So you lived there for two months? Uh, so I, I have a, um, an apartment in Chelsea, so I spent 50% of my time in New York and 50% here. And so, of course, uh, US... Could you not pick somewhere closer? That's not next door. <laughs> no, no, no. So the US um, VCs will not fund you really unless you're American. So we flipped up the company. We were an American company. We kept the, I kept the data scientists and the technologists here, and then I moved the commercial team, so the client-facing team, to New York. And I have an American visa, an E3 investor visa. So for essentially, I was, I was American. I had to position as being American with a charming Australian accent. Um, so uh, the visa. So then we actually had money on the table um, from a corporate venture uh, company, one of the big insurance companies, and from a VC out of Washington. And so that that was five million dollars together. And I'm okay. Well, you know, I've finally done this. Work my ass off to do this. And then I looked at what, what would that mean for us and what control will these companies have and is that the best investment strategy? And just as many of you in the audience who are running startups spend a lot of your time in this capital raising conundrum, I realized I'd spent 60 or 70% of my time in investment conversations all the time. I had this incredible business that needed me as the founder and the CEO to be managing it. And I thought there's got to be a better way than just continually going around VCs hand handed you know out for money. Yep. What could be an alternate investment strategy? And at that time we were seeing money moving in Australia from the mining sector into early stage tech stocks. So I thought, well this is a sensible maybe we can But most get of that was through those dodgy backdoor listings, wasn't it? There was a lot of dodgy backdoor listings, but there's just other people we know who had money who are going, well, we're not going to invest in mining anymore. Is there some okay. tech stocks to invest in? So anyway, myself and the board looked at what would, if we um, listed, if we floated on the ASX, would that solve a couple of problems that we had? So the problems I had as the founder and CEO was spending inordinate amounts of time going around trying to raise money, would going to the capital markets be a faster, more effective way for us to get money? So by way of example of that, since we listed in November last year to, what do we know, April, so six months, yep. we've raised $10.5 million by going to the capital markets and getting uh, both institutional investment and retail investment. Uh, and that comes at, there's an, yeah. another cost to that. But um, but that's been a very, very effective strategy for me. I have very good people on the board who are, who are used to investment bankers, who are used to raising money. So essentially, I support that process that the capital markets take, take care of the capital raise, which means I now can focus on running the business and building the business and doing the things that a CEO and founder should do. Okay. Um, I mean, there's an interesting story I heard about when you were on that process uh, of, you know, I think you call it the roadshow where you're going around and there's a bunch of brokers in a room and you and Kathy went. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah. So um, I do want to tell you about that. So some great stories being a, a woman-led company. Um, so I think the statistics now are at the moment that less than 7% of any investment goes into woman, uh, woman-led businesses, yet we know 
tons of research demonstrates that um, businesses and startups that have women leaders or at least 50% women leadership will actually perform financially um, outperform all male leadership teams, right? So the numbers are there. But until you go into the situations, you don't quite recognise there still is a huge amount of unconscious bias that happens. So Cathy and I, so Cathy reads my chair. So Cathy owns uh, Epic Pharmacy Group and Icon Cancer Clinics. Uh, she, her enterprises are several billion of dollars worth of value. She's one of Australia's most influential business leaders. She's just this most outstanding person. Anyway, so Cathy and I are doing this roadshow, and of 200 investors that we presented to over uh, four to five days, guess what percentage were women investors in the room? Uh, six. <laughs> Anyone like to guess? Zero, correct. Yeah, not a woman. Not a, not a woman to be seen. So, um, which is okay, fine, we deal with that, right? Um, but we walked into this room of investors. Um, they were all sitting down, big, big board table. Um, and Kathy and I walked in, and one of the guys stood up and he said, "You're in the wrong room." <laughs> and we went, "Oh, hang on, let's check." Oh no, we think this is the room. And they said, "No, no, you're in the wrong room." We went, "Oh, okay. Uh, what are you here for?" And they said, "Well, we're waiting for the the." Flamingo team, the technology um, CEO and the chair to arrive. And I said, oh, are you? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> okay, great, good. Okay, yeah, hi, this is this is Kathy and I, we're, we're the CEO and the chair. Anyway, very embarrassing, very awkward silences. <laughs> and then for me, that's always, this is great. I'm just going to just step out into another dimension of outstanding impression and get, get you guys across the line so that you know. Is it nothing untoward meant by this man and, and the other men in the room, simply was unconscious bias. They're just not used to seeing a woman-led team with an artificial intelligence software company based out of New York. They just weren't expecting it. So my role in the industry, other than building an amazing software company, is to start to work and break down some of these unconscious biases so that when any woman walks into the room of any type, investment or other, that people don't automatically think, oh, they're here to take my coffee, or they must be um, somebody's wife. So a couple of other um, classics was, so I was at a um, San Francisco a couple of weeks ago, and it was the Sastra conference, big SAS, a software as a service strategy conference, um, big after party. And um, there was me and standing with maybe five other male entrepreneurs, and, and again, this guy, he, a San Francisco guy, maybe 35, wasn't sort of mature fellow, um, came up and said to each of them, oh, hi, what are you doing? And hi, what are you this time? And hey, what do you do, um, Andrew? And then said to me, oh, you're here with your husband. <laughs> and I went, no, actually no. And then one of the guys said, no, no, this is Katrina. She's the founder and CEO of Flamingo. She runs an artificial intelligence company. And this guy was beside himself. He, he wanted to just scratch his skin off and die. Right? Did but, you help him? No, but I don't. <laughs> but I don't because I know he would have just gone home and just looked in the mirror and gone, oh, I'm a doofus. Like, what was I thinking? That's just so awkward. I'm so... And he was 35. He wasn't 55. So... I have learned as a woman leader, we don't need to sit around and whine about oppression anymore. That, like, we've done enough of that. Yeah. Um, we need to just get out, get results, commercial results, and we need to tell our story and work with the good men who will support us and help amplify our stories so that this unconscious bias dissolves and every woman gets a, a fair chance to present, you know, her good business. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. And, yeah, and you took that... No. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, one more story, one more story, one more story. Yeah, yeah, no, yeah, let's go. Okay. Another investment, another, another investment group. And uh, after the meeting, one of my directors got a call and they said, all right, there's a million dollars on the table, um, but the CEO has to do one thing. I went, okay, what is that like? Achieve some revenue target, um, reduce the burn, what is it? And they said, uh, needs to take the nose ring out. I said, what? It was a much smaller nose ring. And I said, what? Not serious. And he said, yes. If you take the nose ring out, there's a million dollars of investment. <laughs> oh, my God. Right, yeah. It's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Who knows, right? Yeah. So um, that was it. Now, I like it. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah. Thanks, yeah. <laughs> so I went and put a bigger one in. And I just ordered one of those Indian beautiful wedding ones that... that <laughs> 
Anyway, it was, you know, would a man with tattoos, someone ask him to get his tattoos, lays it off? Yeah, possibly not. So there's just a bit of that stuff um, that so what, we have what, to deal what with. What was the punchline with that story? Oh, I didn't take the money. Right, yeah, yeah. I think he's no. selecting himself out even by right, asking exactly. that. Yeah, yeah. and if, if an investment decision is going to be made on face jewellery, then they probably don't know the money. Yeah, correct. So, but you took this uh, support for women one step further, like you, you ran the Ventura. I mean, do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah. So I set up a business called the Ventura, which was a women's co-working space and ran that for about two years and then sold that to uh, another women's co-working space called One Roof, who okay. um, an amazing company uh, led by Cherie Rubenstein, where we just provided a space for women entrepreneurs to come and to work and to be surrounded by... Uh, other women entrepreneurs who are perhaps a couple of steps ahead of them, and uh, and we brought in sort of the ecosystem of investors and, and other support mechanisms. Um, very important, women backing women as well as the good men backing the women. It's really um, women do well when they're with women. Yeah. Should we jump back to the the business for a second? I mean, maybe give us a couple of customer examples, like who's using the product yeah. and what are they using it for? Yeah, so um, we've focused on the insurance sector, so very good learning from me to keep very narrow in your vertical approach in, in startup. So financial services is what we do, uh, insure tech is pretty much where we've landed. So we have companies like Nationwide Insurance who have used our platform to sell um, pet insurance, employee benefits. We're now doing a major implementation for them, which is their first one of their first direct to customer uh, product implementations where um, they've realized that if they're taking something direct to market, having a website and a call center is just not gonna cut it. And most of these companies in Australia or in the US who are trying to sell online complex products, the conversion rates are about 1% to 3%. Very, very low. And they realise no matter how much money they spend on doing better web design, that customers just still don't buy online. And with a virtual assistant to help guide customers through that experience uh, will be much better. So we have a, a large uh, insurer, one of the la world's largest insurers out of Boston, who uh, we use our product to sell auto insurance, so car insurance. We, uh, so what is, I mean, that, that piece uh, helps yeah. sell. I mean, what does that actually look like? So okay, I'm yeah. a customer, I go to their website, yeah. what happens? Okay, so customer, I want auto insurance, um, go online and you might want to get a quote or you want to, want to purchase online. So you get into all the copious web form um, parts yeah. of the website and you may get a quote and then 95% of customers will abandon once they've got a quote. Um, and so for that company, again, conversion rates are about 1% 1, 1 from visitors to okay. who buys a policy. So what our platform would do, um, let's say it's Andrea. Andrea's um, online looking to insure her car. Um, our screen will appear either, uh, our capability appears a tile on the front page of the website which says, hey, would you like to be guided through your purchase experience today? Or it can appear at some stage at the web journey. So it could be after a customer gets a quote when they normally drop out. Might be a pop screen or a tile that says, would you like us to guide you through the rest of your experience here? And that's when our virtual assistant, we call her Rosie, she appears and she can do two things. She can have a conversation with a customer and she guides, she makes decisions and guides customers through the next phase on their journey. And, and is Rosie an avatar or a chat window? Uh, it is... Uh, it is a well, whole platform, actually. If you clicked on the, the tile that says, would you like to be guided, you come into our platform, which appears like a, a chat interface yep. where you can have a, a conversation by chat and then you'll see things come onto what we call the bench. It might be the product. It might be the quotation. And the customer can start to choose and interact in a really cool way with the okay. platform and with the, with the um, virtual assistant. Okay, so, and the outcome, I mean, with the 1% conversion, what, what did yeah, that Yeah, so we're to? typically tasked with just doubling that, so get us to 2%. And, of course, for these large companies, this is 
millions and millions and millions of dollars right. of revenue. But it really is the, the industry is at the stage now where um, all senior executives and, and a lot of you will be either facing this or have clients talking about this, where they need to significantly improve digital and online sales. They need to improve the customer experience because it's a bit hideous online. Plus, they need to reduce cost. And so those three things are just not really traditionally achievable together. You throw more call centre agents at it. You can throw more web forms at it. But we're at a nexus where that's just not achievable unless there's some clever tech like machine learning. All right, so let's touch on that. So what's the difference between machine learning and AI and where does Flamingo sit in that? Okay, so, so let me explain artificial intelligence. So a simple definition of artificial intelligence is that it is a software application that learns and it learns either in a narrow way, a general way, or a super way. So let me explain what it is. So in itself, it's not particularly intelligent, but it has the ability to learn. So artificial intelligence is sometimes put up by other vendors as um, rules-based. So a lot of the chatbots that you see are not actually artificially intelligent. They are just based on rules and decision trees, and you'll get three or four steps down in them and they won't be able to do anything more. That is not artificial intelligence, just a rules-based engine. So artificial intelligence must have machine learning. That's the key thing. And these are algorithms that learn. So Rosie, our machine learning platform, she actually learns from every customer interaction and she stores that in her memory and then she uses that the next time a customer asks a similar question. So if we think of the types of artificial intelligence, there's artificial narrow intelligence, which is what we do. So let's think about... Um, AMP is one of our clients here. Um, Rosie just has to learn about AMP. Um, we're doing superannuation for AMP. So we learn about AMP's superannuation and AMP's processes and the type of questions that a customer might ask around superannuation. That's all Rosie needs to learn. There's not actually, it's not, she doesn't need to know what the weather is. She doesn't need to know what the football score is. That's all she needs to learn. So she can learn that very, very quickly. A couple of hundred completed customer cases and she's trained already to be able to, to handle that. Um, artificial, and so this type of machine learning is here and now and very mature. Artificial general intelligence, the audience will know, Siri and Cortana and Alexa, these are the virtual assistants that we typically have on our phones or at home, and they can do general things. So they can know the football score, they can know the weather, they can book an Uber, they can play music, and they're pretty good but the accuracy rate still not anywhere near 100%. And these technologies are probably two or three years away from being mature, where we can really ask, our, ask Alexa at home. Who's got Alexa at home? Has anyone got Amazon? I know, do you love her? I so love her. Um, but she can do some things, but she can't do everything now. So two or three years away from being really mature. And then there's artificial super intelligence. So the best example of super intelligence is IBM Watson. So if we think of narrow intelligence and general intelligence, these intelligences can replace and do things that humans can do now. Super intelligence can do things beyond what humans can do. And IBM Watson is a great example of that. And that's around 2025, 2030, so another, say, 15 years away, before that becomes really mature. And so our view is let's give a lot, let's help our clients and end customers do a light touch step into AI by starting with narrow intelligence and then moving forward. But eventually what will happen, and we're already working on this with some of our US clients, is um, so let's imagine we provide a virtual assistant for insurance companies to help them sell insurance. Alexa could um, connect with, as a personal virtual assistant, could connect with the customer virtual assistant, and these two things, these devices, are machines do the interaction without the human being involved. That's where it's all heading very, very, very quickly. Yeah. And do you think, like, you know, this is a slight diversion, but super intelligence in 30 years, is that force for good or evil? Okay, yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> Will the robot, robots take over? So um, I think we're headed now into an, into an evolution or a revolution. There's no question about it. So the, the coming of AI finally, so I did a PhD in human technology interaction, robots replacing humans, I don't know, 15 years ago, right? So we've been talking about it forever. And those are the fields, oh, will this ever become mature? And finally it is, right? 60 years of it. Um, 
So what we know is probably second only to when the internet arrived, which is what, 20 years ago or something, this next revolution will be absolutely, probably not as great as the change that the internet brought, but very similar. We will start seeing all sorts of things being automated. Um, so we need to be ready for that as entrepreneurs and as business people, as consultants, uh, etc. Um, now, what we hope is that what we've learned through the internet did some great things and done some really bad things, right? So now I see there's much more consciousness around ethics and morals and rules and guidance with the coming of AI. And I'm involved in some of those um, programs. Even there was uh, an initiative out of the White House led by Obama around ethics to do with the coming of robots and artificial intelligence. I'm surprised that wasn't Trump, but... Oh my God, yeah. You were going to get rid of them. But, um, so I think, same as everything, there will be good and there'll be bad. Um, if you look at these news reports last night about um, the North Korean missile launch, that they could have gone badly because of the cyber hackers in the US interfering or using bots to interfere with uh, the military, right? So, all of that ahead of us. So now, and, and I think this whole thing around ethics and security and privacy needs to come out of the domain of the governments and some department in your large organisations that sits up in the, in, you know, in the corner where brown cardigan wearing people figure out security yeah. protocols. We each individually need to have our own ethics, our own um, interest in security, and particularly when we're dealing with end customers, we, we call it in Flamingo, we have to have a culture of security that isn't like in some outsourced department. Absolutely critical. And we need to think about the good and the bad that can happen with the coming of machines. Yeah, and the, threat, the threats could come from almost left field. I mean, it's not that we're necessarily going to get Arnie and an army of machines coming in and executing us, but societal, you know, jobs go, societal breakdown, you know, people poor and disenfranchised voting in loonies. Okay, right, right. So, so let me just test this audience, right? Not, I'm not going to test you, that was harsh. Um, check with you. So this... What happens to the jobs is a big question. Can I just get a feel? Those of you, when I talk about you know the coming of robots and machines, to hear um, artificial intelligence, who is like excited? Who is mm, sitting on the fence, not really sure? And who is uh, not happy? Don't know, a bit worried. What happens to the jobs? Don't don't trust the robots. Um, actually, can you do this? Can you just like tell the person next to you just for thirty seconds what your view is, and then we'll do a quick poll of the audience. Yeah, let's go. Audience interaction, we never do that. We've got about five minutes and then we've got some questions. Alright, is that enough? Alright, that's enough. Thank you. Alrighty, let's come back. Back in the room. Okay, let's see. Um, let's start with how many of you are not sure, need more information, don't know, are the robots good, are they bad, not sure where it's all going, not sure. Okay. It's about 20, 15%, I'd say. Okay, let's get, um, if you could let us know your name and where you're from, and you could, if you could stand up so everyone can Excellent. stare at you. And tell me, why do you think this? AWS, um, I do deal with technology uh, a lot, and um, so, Robert's good. I love technology, all for him. However, if you look at uh, the data, you'll see a lot of people around there, they don't have technical degrees. With all this technology coming in, uh, they can take a lot of jobs and people are just going to suffer. And uh, to get ready for that, we do have to change our approach to education. And that would you know, essentially save us. So, yeah. All right. Great. Thank you. Thanks, Maxim. Okay, who was uh, not comfortable, don't really like the fact that the robots are coming, uh, worried about it? <laughs> okay. Now there's three of us, four or five. Let's go to the gentleman at the back. If you could stand up, let us know who you are, where you're from. Hello, my name is Steve. I'm from Afghanistan, so you can imagine why I'm pleased. I want to know Okay. For example, yeah. if, if robot takes, let's, let's say, your job in the next one year, 
Okay, great. So concerned about jobs? Great. Let me go to the... Yeah. Hi, can you stand up and let us stare at you? Yeah. Um, look, so I actually completely believe in AI and I think it's a fantastic area. I don't believe in the human response. So our jobs are just a collection of tasks and that will be changed over time. Yeah. But like Maxim said, I don't think we're going to be ready to respond well in educating Okay, not quite ready for it. Okay, great, thank you. All right, um, hand off who is excited about the coming of the bots and is feeling fairly positive about it. Oh, you look, you're all shy. I'm oh, not put your hand up. Okay, great. So, so majority, and that, that's typically how it is. We, I tend to have maybe two thirds of the audience going, yeah, we're pretty excited about it and need to know a bit more about it, but I'm pretty excited about it. And then, then about a third who are going, mm, sitting on the fence or, or not so much. Who would like to jump up and tell us why they're excited? Ravi. Um, honestly, I think that you know when programming, uh, well, computers came along and we started to program. Most of the tasks that we do today can be automated anyway. You know, most of um, insurance policies that you take out at the moment involve some sort of testing and code that needs to happen before it gets released for you to use. And in that testing, there is a script that's written that goes through and does everything that you would do as a human being. I think that we don't have to worry about artificial intelligence so much as we do as say. Um, quantum computing, because as soon as you can build a computer that's that powerful, all of the security and the technology that we have today pretty much becomes a new point. You've got a computer that's so powerful that it can act as every robot on Earth, um, as, a, as, a, as an example. But pretty much anything that we can do now can already be automated. We can write scripts to replace pretty much everyone in the truth. So let me give you just a, a, a tiny little, my view on this, having thought about this for 15 years. <laughs> so we've been nervous at times when um, jobs are starting, you know, call centre jobs are going to be outsourced and offshored to the Philippines and India. We're all nervous that there was a great uh, unemployment in Australia. Didn't really happen. Uh, the industrial revolution, the manufacturing revolution, these things have come before us and there has, yes, to a degree been individuals displaced and that is not a great thing but overall the society and economy shifts and transitions into actually creating new jobs so a quick example um, for us we have now a role uh, I don't even know what to properly call it which is the brain seeder so I need somebody who is sort of an analytical mind who trains Rosie's brain in the client companies so we will start having other um, roles that didn't exist, even from the work that we're doing. Uh, we need people in businesses who develop the persona for the virtual assistant. That didn't exist. Who wants to be a, a robot persona developer? Me. That's cool. Um, and we will see, and even in our clients, so in some of our uh, large US clients, the CFO has calculated if they use artificial intelligence uh, agents to do selling and onboarding, it will reduce 30% of calls into the call centre and potentially have 30% of jobs at risk. Now, our clients publicly say we will not release those staff. We have so much work for them to do. We will just deploy them in doing other customer care activities that we just haven't had the time to do. So my view on it, and I, and I love the philosophy of this, is in fact machines can help us be more human. They can free us from doing a lot of the mundane things that we do in business and at home in order for us to be more human and do the higher level things that we, we want to do and should do. So whether that's being on purpose, whether that's spending more time with family, whether that's solving more problems, building deeper relationships that machines won't be able to do, that's what it frees up. And um, that's why I think machines can help us be more human. Okay, well, that's uh, an awesome way, I think, to throw to some questions. So, does anyone have a question? Oh, there's one at the back here. We might just wait for the mic, so it's just at the left here. And we'd love to know your name and where you're from. I'm Gemma, and from Next Mile's Time, I'll just jump quickly. It's a really unsophisticated question, so my apologies. But I just want to know why all these assistants have female names. Do you have a view on that? I do. I've got a very, a very um, good view on that. So of the 230 main mainstream chatbots or virtual assistants globally, 35% of them are women, women personas, 29% of them are male personas, and their balance are gender neutral. So of the top seven, 
like the Siri Cortana, Alexa, etc. 74% of those are women's names. Even Rosie. Rosie is a woman's name. Now, the reason for this is when we've done initial research a couple of years ago, the lowest level of friction between an, an end customer dealing with a robot or virtual assistant is if it was a young woman. This is the most, the least threatening thing, whereas a big robot called Jerome <laughs> might, <laughs> might be, uh, not sure, but the robot, so very interesting. However, end of last year, um, I went out to do some research and asked Australian, 500 Australian consumers, what gender would you like the robot or the virtual assistant you're interacting with to be? Woman, older, same age, younger, man, older, same age, younger, or, or gender neutral. And then we went to business and we asked business, what do you think your customers want? Right? So um, business came back and very strongly said, we think that the female gendered robots are the most important, that's what we think we'll do, followed by gender neutral, followed by older male, followed very last, younger male. <laughs> Sorry, boys. Um, and so then we, we went, okay, well, that's good. The businesses think it's female. We went to Australian consumers, and very interesting, they went, number one, gender neutral. Number two, older female. Three, older male. Very last, younger male. So what is great is I think very soon we will evolve past having to have the persona of a human on a machine because a machine is not a human and we'll get into perfectly okay that you're just dealing with a robot. Um, and we probably won't call them robots because that has other sort of stigmas. It's a virtual assistant. It's a piece of software. It doesn't need a agenda. It is just a piece of software. So even for us at Flamingo, we're thinking, well, Rosie's very good. People love Rosie. Rosie's named after the Jetsons robot. Um, but we may evolve pretty soon into this is just a, um, a virtual assistant. Doesn't doesn't need a gender or even a name. All right. So no one's going to be called Arnie. Right. That's good. <laughs> yeah. One here. Uh, yeah. Here you go. It's Bowen, doesn't it? No. Yeah. Hello, I'm Elise from Hazard as Um You mentioned earlier there were some negatives to listing on the NSX, and I was wondering what those were. Right, yeah, good question. Um, so, the negatives would be the, the cost of listing is quite significant. So, to do a full-blown IPO if you're a large company, typically sits about a million dollars of investment. We did it significantly um, less than that, but it was still a fair amount of investment that, that went into that, probably around $650,000 to get the business listed. And then uh, we have a lot of compliance that we need to do. So I spend uh, you know, a reasonable amount of time with my chief commercial officer, Brent Chunley, making sure that we're completely compliant. It's full disclosure, so there's nothing that I can do, actually personally or professionally, or the business, that we don't disclose to the ASX. So what is very good is the rigour through which we had to go through to show that we were a, a sensible company with a viable business, etc., has been um, fabulous, but you have to open the kimono. There's no secrets. And the level of compliance and disclosure is um, very, very rigorous, particularly for the small cap companies because the... The backdoor listings had... Because they had tightened up the regulations. Yeah, yeah really tight, super tight. Could, could you get in now if you were going again? Uh, yeah, we were the first company in Australia to list with the Titan regulations. Okay. Yeah, yeah, we went through, yeah. So that was... Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I that think I read somewhere it's 30% thing. of your time, roughly, on compliance well, and investor uh, and relations. And investor relations, yeah, exactly. Right. Which is much less than 60% of my time used to be on... Um, trying to hit up VCs, um, so much better for me. And I really like the fact that we have Australian mums and dads. We've got 1,700 investors in the business. Um, some of those are institutions and other ones are mums and dads who, who take a, a really active, sometimes overactive interest in, <laughs> in uh, yeah. everything that we do. Uh, what's your view in equity crowdfunding, so opening up? You know the, the the what you might call higher risk earlier stage businesses to those same investor types. 
Say the question again. So should those same okay. mums and dads that are investing in the ASX be able to do it for earlier stage higher risk companies through equity right. crowdfunding? Yeah, right, of course. So, so one of the things is that we, we are doing a thing, one of these um, few what's called small cap, so um, small market cap um, listed and so we're not allowed to call ourselves a startup anymore. We're an early stage company, right? But we will do some work in educating the market. We spend a lot of time talking to the market about the fact that there are other companies that may or may not be listed, which would be good to invest in as well. And particularly as money still is coming out of some of the resourcing um, stocks into tech stocks, hopefully we can do that. So whether it's um, equity funding, crowdfunding, or, or these individuals actually investing in uh, startups like are in the room today, um, hopefully we can influence them that it's a, it's a good thing to do. Yeah. All right, should we take a, another question? Maybe one at the, the, the back. Yeah, hey. Just wanted a, a, a final follow-on question on that topic was, well, given what you were saying about you know, the open kimono and having to report everything and so forth, yeah. um, does that have an implication for the timing at which you might do an ASX listing? So in other words, when you're still very early stage, when you're still searching for a business model, it doesn't sound like a, a great time to be disclosing everything and you know, maybe you don't have revenues yet. So. Yeah, so the revenue is not so much the issue, but it is that you would probably need to have a product that's been tested in market. You've got some basic um, product market fit. I mean, we're still very early stage revenue as well. Um, so not so much about revenue, but about that you have a product, you've got some initial traction, and that the investors or, um, uh, and the ASX gives great guidance on this, of what the potential is. So there are yeah, plenty of companies that are, have done um, small cap IPOs without being particularly mature. So it, it's definitely, if you can, if you have the funding or can raise the funding, and there's various ways that that can be done to do the actual listing, then I think it's, it's a reasonable path to look at. It's certainly, a, for us, it's been a very viable alternate path to, to market for investment. Okay, interesting. Uh, someone's got a mic down here, too. Yep, here we go. Hi, I'm Ulas, uh, and I'm working with AWS. So my question is, like, how that inspiration, you got that inspiration to open an organization, yeah. how that uh, progress status happened, and <clears throat> what uh, is, is from basics to you know, the current stage, how you have developed all those things. Yeah. So can you put some uh, focus on that? Yeah, yeah, great. Okay, so the question is, from concept of the idea and then within you know, under three years to getting the business to be American-based, uh, back in Australia, listed, um, etc. How raise 14 million, how do we do that? So here's a couple of the... the it's probably better around the engineering too. Yeah, the, yeah. the, key, the key lessons for... Do you want me to talk about our cloud provider? Do you? Uh, do no. You? Do you? Unless you want to. <laughs> well, well, cloud is part of our story. So, um, okay, so these are my lessons of being a startup founder. So... Um, it is all about product market fit and not, and what that means is that you have a product and someone will use it and pay for it. It doesn't matter if they pay $5 for it or $5 million for it, someone will pay for it and think it's useful, right? So we, so the most important thing is get a minimal viable product which you think solves some problem and get it out into market and test and see if someone will pay for it. Now, where I see startups not do this well is that they're, you're really smart people or you're really smart engineers and you, you think there's a problem and you just build a solution and you think, oh, this solution's awesome. And then you take it to market and no one will pay for it. It might solve a really good problem and no one will pay for it. Now, I started out like this. I thought a great idea would be um, building a marketplace where customers can come and, and, and end customers come and say, oh, this is a type of insurance product I want, different to an aggregator, and then we would have different companies compete for it. Anyway, it was, I thought it was brilliant. And uh, took it to market and uh, some of the companies went, yeah, it's a great idea, we'll never pay for it. We hate marketplaces. And I'm like, what do you mean? <laughs> solves the problem. They go, yeah, it solves the problem, but we will never pay for it. And I'm like, oh, well, that was $50,000 of my own money tanked down the toilet. So I came back and went, oh, okay, well, what will you pay for? And they said, if you built us a platform that helped customers buy better from us, Oh, we'd pay a lot for that. And I went, okay, great. And at the time I thought, well, 
I don't know that much about insurance, um, but it seems to be insurance people that have money. So what I did as an entrepreneur went, this is my job, right? I need to understand a market, develop a solution, a very basic solution, take it into real customers and test it, get them to tell me what they will pay for if they're not going to pay for it. Quick, another example. I built this the initial version of our product and went, oh, there's no like great customer retention products in the market, right? Everyone else is doing sales stuff. I'll brand this as a retention product. Went into America, sold it into an American company, used it for retaining their customers, brilliant results. And then the CEO, I said to the CEO, well, let's roll this stuff out across your business. He goes, yeah, no. I said, what? He goes, I don't care about retention. I went, what do you mean you don't care about it? I said, of course you do. He goes, no. Change it into a sales tool and I will pay for it. I went, Okay, right. So I could have stayed on my, oh, customer retention, that's my thing, and love the customer, love the customer, blah, 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 you know. But I went, oh, no, no, no bastard's going to pay for that. So I'm going to build something that someone's going to pay for. And sales, okay, great, I'm in sales now because someone is going to pay for it. And that is the most important thing. Even if you go, oh, this is my baby over here, this is my, like, no, your baby is ugly. Just put your baby, (laughs) put your baby on and just get a customer. What part of my baby... It's really ugly. And this other thing I do and I teach my, my stuff, zero resistance. So zero in, resistance in front of the VCs. Zero resistance in front of your customers. Don't be there defending the major like features your team has just developed that you think are awesome. If the customer thinks it's ugly and your baby's ugly, listen to it. Listen, listen, listen. And build things that customers will pay for. It's the greatest lesson. And it's a bit painful because you've got to be in there and get sort of beaten around by the customers a bit. Um, but I had a couple of, like one. Yeah, no, that's right. Okay, awesome. lessons, right. So be, sit next to your customers, go into your customers, talk your way in and sit with them and get them to tell you what your product should be, right? Not just one customer, a few of them. Just inveigle your way in there, just talk your way in there and get there and have them tell you what they'll pay for. Second thing is know that everything is fucked up all the time as a startup, right? Everything. <laughs> doesn't work. Nothing quite works. And we don't talk about this enough, right? So the beautiful expression I heard out of San Francisco the other day was, the board's job is to know that everything is fucked up all the time, and their role is to help the CEO unfuck it. (laughs) So the board's job is to know that everything's fucked up all the time, their role to help the CEO unfuck it. So for those of you who go, oh, my clients hate me, my product doesn't work, I don't have money, I can't raise that. Great. That's exactly how you're meant to be. It's meant to be completely broken and messy, fucked up all the time. And you should go home not sleeping because it's so bad, you're embarrassed, right? That's brilliant because that level of fucked upness and agitation will get you to the stage where you are forced to make some hard decisions about, oh, shit, that client's not paying for it. I'm not going to keep going after them. I need to go here. So the fucked upness is great. We want to be fucked up. And then we just need people that help us unfuck it. (laughs) Well, I think that's actually some of the the best advice I've ever heard from... uh, No, genuinely, uh, from any of our guests. So there's there's one here you're going to have to wait, sorry, and then come to you next. Yeah. Hi, Karen. Um... So I do a lot of work in um, health medtech startups, and I'm interested in your comment about research showing that the avatar needs to go gender neutral, mm. because in aged care, chronic disease management, the work out of the uh, University of Adelaide and some spin-off companies have got avatars uh, helping in aged care and um, compliance with staying on medication. Yeah. And all that research is that um, People respond best to a female or not necessarily female, but definitely human. Yeah. Um, And all their models are around females. So there's just interesting, perhaps, segment specific kind of findings, which is interesting. Definitely, definitely could be. And for those people, whether it's aged care without massively generalising around um, demographic differences, may who may not be as tech literate, then definitely a gender and a female gender seems to work really well. But I will definitely predict within the next two years, the gender nature of it will move away. And there's also, this sounds a bit harsh, but where humans have not done a particularly good job on things, so whether it's sometimes customer service, then why are we trying to get 
pretend human to do it. We should go, oh, well, humans, we're not particularly good at that, so let's get a machine to do it, and we don't need to pretend it's a human. So we'll get there, um, and I'd say even healthcare eventually will get there. 78% of Australians that we interviewed in this study we did um, a couple of months ago said that they are very open to working with, uh, to interacting with a bot, and the reason for that is they want help, and they want immediate assistance and they want information those three things and so they're saying if i can't get that from a human you're damn right i'll take a i'll take a bot and i don't really care what gender it is so we will get there and eventually we'll see hey but the great thing is we don't know how brilliant is that and people like this in the room we will create the future of what it is by just testing and learning and seeing what happens so i don't actually know what will happen uh, but i'll play a role in trying to figure that out and let you know Okay, maybe time for one more. Yep, Andrea. Stand up, Andrea. Let's stare at you. Andrea Gardner, Um One, I want to say, I think it's, I think you're the most wonderful, powerful role model for women, and I think women founders really, really need to see women like you. Okay. So, well done for actually spending all the time that you do spend up on the uh, and my other point is, getting back to your fucked upness point, I actually think that, um, I suppose I'm speaking for myself, but I don't think I'm alone, is that a lot of women feel like everything has to be really perfect before they get it out to the customer. Yeah. Yeah. Do, you think, do you think that that's, that is more problematic for, for women founders, getting over that, because that whole concept of flirting, getting, it's much quicker to get out with something, a rough product, and learn from your customer and iterate on that rather than just trying to do it as perfectly as yeah. you can. Yeah, yeah. There's no room for perfect in startup. We like really near enough is good enough. And I think you're right. I think women tend to want to have things better formed because they also know that they'll go out and get you know a bit punched around. But but I have this other sort of visual guided visual thing that I do. And so this is it, right? So. As the people go, oh, I want to run my own business and I, I need to, I want to be an entrepreneur. I go, okay, great, great, great. So walk to the edge of the cliff and then there's an abyss, right? It's this black hole. Um, if you want to be an entrepreneur, woman, man, um, you need to jump off and you don't know where you're going to land, right? So jump into the abyss and you, you land at the bottom and you sort of, you know, might roll your ankle a bit or you get up. And then as you're walking, you sort of vaguely see some light in the future. As you're walking along, you're walking along. And you just get punched in the face, right? You get, oh, didn't see that coming. Oh, where did that come from? You get up, wipe yourself down, and then you walk away, and then and you get punched in the face again. Oh, gee, that really hurt. And women tend to not want to get punched in the face because it doesn't feel good, right? But being punched in the face is actually really good as an entrepreneur. So you go along and get punched in the face, and then as you get up, the light becomes a bit clearer, and you can see the punches coming, and you duck them, and then you see there's come other people walking in the, in the dark out with you, and you warn them that there's a punch coming. And this is where women tend not to want to go in and, and get roughed up. So, so I say women come and, and just jump into the abyss and, and go because you will be outstanding entrepreneurs. All the characteristics that women have as entrepreneurs are just so ready for this era where we are now, but we have to be a bit roughed up. So we have to be used to the punches in, in the abyss until we walk out and we start seeing like, we go, great, now I, I don't need to get punched. I can see it, I can jump over things and I'm here and I'm, I'm now feel confident. So don't be scared of the punches, women, because they're really good for you. <laughs> but I think that's a pretty good place to, to, to call it there. So, uh, look, Katrina, thank you so much. That was great insights.